Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And this week, Olivia is going to be telling us about the wasp. Yeah, so this is a request from Taro Wong on Instagram. So thank you for that request. I kind of like it when people request things because sometimes, I'm not going to lie, I get a little lazy and I'm like, I'm going to do an easy thing this week. And sometimes I just need that little push to do something a little more interesting and complicated like a wasp. So I'm really glad for this request because it forced me to go get some books and do some readings and of course, completely overwhelm myself with information. Uh, so I hope this episode is not like as chaotic as it feels in my mind, because just like the time we got really into ants, I have become a little bit too obsessed with wasps. So <laughs> that's awesome. I'm so excited. Yeah. I mean, the ant series is, I think, one of my proudest podcasting achievements. And I don't think this will be quite as good, quite as juicy, because I didn't read quite as many books, but I still think it's going to be good. And I want to start this episode with a little rant, because I believe strongly, very strongly, that there is no insect more, like, relentlessly, and in my opinion, undeservedly maligned than the wasp. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say to me, or say on the internet, or, like, even on the radio, I've heard, like, DJs talk about this. They'll be like, wasps are a useless animal. Like, why do we have them? Why don't we just get rid of them? What is the point of a wasp? They serve no purpose. And mm, no. In this essay, (laughs) I will prove to you that not only are wasps important, but they are possibly one of the most interesting and maybe important groups on the planet. Like, they are so present in our lives in ways that we don't We don't understand yet, and we're only just starting to, like, really get into them. And yeah, anyway, (laughs) unsurprisingly, um, this is no small feat to prove this. So this will have to be a two-parter series on wasps. So today, we'll focus more on the life cycle of wasps, specifically the paper wasps. And it'll just be kind of the basics. And then next week, we'll talk more about, like, I don't know, like weird facts. We'll do some like murder hornet info, some myth busting, and just like try and find as many juicy things to talk about as we can. Not to say that this episode will not be juicy, but I've realized that like the basics are important and we don't know the basics, I think, as a general public. Yeah, that's great. I think I'm definitely going to have to get my dad to listen to this episode because I think my dad is just like one of those people who just thinks that some animals are, like, intrinsically evil. Like, he doesn't really (laughs) think about, like, oh, maybe, you know, evolution put this, you know, species down this path because it was, like, a successful, like, strategy for them. And, And this is just, you know, what they're adapted to do. And they aren't, like, trying to to bite you because they are evil or or they don't like <laughs> or angry he, anyway so that's all to say I do feel like we need to debunk some of that because I do agree with you that wasps get that treatment the most and I don't I don't know why and how bees got this like major PR makeover 
in the past 10 years (laughs) and wasps got nothing. In fact, I feel like people got angrier with wasps because they were like, why couldn't you be like B? Why are you the way that you are? (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, we should mention that because when we were kind of looking up wasps in Animal Crossing, up until New Horizons, the wasps were bees. Like when you would, you know, hit a tree and a nest would come out and sting you, it used to be bees and now it's wasps. This is a major cultural shift that obviously was global. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Like, I feel like that in itself, we need to do an episode, like, just like (laughs) revitalization of bees. But, oh God, yeah. And like, I've realized, like, I, I mean, I didn't know anything really about wasps. And I would imagine most of our listeners don't either. I mean, we kind of know that they sting but I've also heard a lot of confusing sort of bite, sting, urban myths about wasps. Like, is it a bite? Is it a sting? And then we also know that they build nests. But beyond that, everyone's just really confused about what they do, what they eat, just everything. So hopefully almost everything in this episode will be brand new information to you. And if it's not, I mean, congrats on being well-educated on wasps because most of us aren't. And then hopefully at the next family picnic, you can go around correcting everyone's made up wasp facts when they inevitably invade your outdoor event and devour the fruit salad. So for this episode, I have largely, as I said, read a lot of books, but I've largely drawn from two books about wasps. One is called The Evolution of Social Wasps by James H. Hunt, and the other is a really good book called Wasps, The Astonishing Diversity of a Misunderstood Insect by Eric Eaton. And I found this book, um, it was an ebook on the University of Alberta website. So if there's any U of A folks out there, you can access this book for free on the U of A website. Um, And maybe if you have access to your own university, that book might be on there and you can check it out. It's a beautifully illustrated, really well-written, easy to understand book. I can't, I can't suggest it enough. It's been great. So, you know, claps for Eric Eaton on writing a really good science book. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm excited to dive into it, and without further ado, let's hear what Blathers has to say about wasps, which I'm sure will not be very kind. (laughs) No. If you bring a wasp to Blathers, he'll say, Who? Allow me to share a fact with you. Wasps are sometimes called meat bees because they eat meat, meat of almost any sort. Surely you've seen what a menace they make of themselves at picnics. Tis hardly the worst of it. What, what? Aggressive predators with venomous stingers. Wasps not only hunt and eat other insects, they paralyze their prey, then drag their victims home alive, leaving them for their larvae to feed upon. Suddenly a simple sting seems quite tolerable. Oh boy. That was... That was a lot. I don't know if I've ever heard them called meat bees. I haven't either. <laughs> Maybe that's like a Japanese thing. Maybe like a direct translation thing. But I I love that <laughs> in a way. I yeah. Kind of, like it's really accurate. Yeah, it's interesting. So I mean, I guess to start off, like what is a wasp? Are they very closely related to bees? I, I feel like I don't know anything about their taxonomy. Are they bees? Yeah, oh my goodness. This is a complicated one. And to all the 
if there's like actual taxonomists or entomologists listening, I just want to like give a heads up. I'm not going to be using, I'm going to try and use as few fancy names as I can in this explanation because it's a really confusing taxonomy that seems to be changing and has changed quite a bit in the past. But yeah, let's just get into it. So most of us would probably think of a wasp as, well, it's this fairly large insect, this flying menace with black and yellow stripes and a stinger. And that's probably what you think of when you think of a wasp. But if you've been listening to our show for a while now, you may know that when it comes to bugs, nothing is ever simple. So wasps in general come in a vast variety of forms. They can be colorful. They can be iridescent. Some of them are really skinny with these long tail-like ovipositors. Some are really fluffy and look like chunky ants. And some are so small that they are scarcely larger than amoebas. So the past year I've been, I I was working as a, a lab technician and I was processing these pitfall traps, which are these traps where you lay out basically, it's kind of like the the same thing where you like lay out like a bird bath or something in your yard and it just collects a whole bunch of dead bugs. Um, it's kind of like that, but you know, with all these chemicals and preservatives and stuff. So I was sorting through these traps, looking at the bugs and I would find in one trap from a canola field in Alberta, I would find probably honestly, hundreds of species of wasps. And you would find all these different sizes. You would find all of these, like some of them were really, really skinny with these long legs. Some of them have massive eyes. I found these tiny, uh, oh my gosh, like you would honestly, I'm looking at a microscope and I almost missed these wasps because I thought that they were little fruit flies or something smaller than a fruit fly. Like honestly, they were about a third the size of a fruit, fruit fly. And they were basically transparent and they looked like bees. Like if you think of a cute little, the cutest little cartoon bee you can imagine, massive eyes, like just adorable. And it was so small. So this is what we're talking about here is just a massive, a massive diversity. And once upon a time, it was generally thought that the most speciose, the, the, the group with the most species on the planet in terms of animals were the beetles. And you may have heard the phrase from British biologist J.B.S. Haldane that, quote, God must have had an inordinate fondness for beetles. And this is a quote that gets thrown around a lot in biology, especially when we're talking about bugs. And yeah, there's a lot of beetles, but now we're starting to realize that wasps might actually take the title for the group with the most species. And the main reason for this is because among the wasps, there are a group of wasps that are called parasitic wasps, and they parasitize very specific host species by laying their their eggs in live host bodies and allowing their larvae to develop and consume the host. I read this article in The Atlantic by Ed Young, and he spoke to Andrew Forbes, who's a wasp biologist. And um, I kind of like this quote from the article. So he says, it seems that every species of insect is targeted by at least one species of parasitic wasp, if not several. There are even parasitic wasps that exclusively target other parasitic wasps, and they're called hyperparasites. And this is a quote from Andrew Forbes within the article, and it says, When we collect a species of beetle in large numbers, we'll rear out 10, 20, maybe 30 different species of wasp. That's, I can't even wrap my head around that. 
The quote says every species of insect is targeted by at least one species of parasitic wasp. Like, does that not mean that there's at least as many parasitic wasp species as there are all other species of insect? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's blowing my mind. It's it's unbelievable. And the first time I learned this, it was in my class and I was like, I'm sorry, what? We need to like yeah. stop everything and like talk about this. I mean, that's just insects. We're not even talking about arthropods. We're not talking about spiders, about millipedes, but all of that other stuff. Like this is a group that is colossal. And ultimately this study claims that wasps outnumber beetles 2.5 to 3.2 times at least. And like the reason this isn't a better known fact is that wasps are very poorly studied. These are estimates. We don't know how many of these parasitic wasps are out there because for a lot of them, they're extremely small. I mean, like I said, some of them are basically amoeba sized. And the way a lot of people study them is you just have to catch a whole bunch of bugs, put them in containers and just let like raise them until they die and a wasp comes out of them. And sometimes these wasps are very, very small. So it's a lot of work to study them. And I mean, insect taxonomy is hard as it is when you're looking at larger bugs. You have to look at all these little fine features and genetics and imagine something as small as like a tiny little wasp. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is like, this is making me think of like viruses or bacteria or something like that, that like would be that diverse and would be basically in everything oh my god yeah I mean it's it's pretty shocking like (laughs) and this is what makes this episode so hard for me is I want to talk about all the wasps but (laughs) that is completely not feasible we'll be here until literally the end of time (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah I just wanted to like hit you all with that really crazy fact so yeah, wasps is a very confusing group, but but let's try and get back to the taxonomy and I'll try and explain it in sort of as simple terms as I can. So wasps are part of one of the four big mega diverse insect orders called Hymenoptera. The other three mega diverse orders are the moths and butterflies, the Lepidoptera, the flies, which are called Diptera, and the beetles, Coleoptera. Each of these four groups contain more species than the other 26 insect orders combined. So they really dominate the bugs. So let's look at Hymenoptera here. This group doesn't just contain wasps. It also contains sawflies, which look a lot like wasps, but they don't have that distinct narrow waist. It also has the bees and the ants. What these bugs have in common in this group is that at one point in their evolutionary history, they all had or continue to have two pairs of membranous wings. And the name Hymenoptera means married wing in Greek, referring to the fact that that their wings have these little tiny hooks on them that allow the wings to attach together while in flight. So it kind of makes just like a smoother airfoil, basically, uh, more efficient flight. Hymenoptera also develop into adults from larva and pupa, meaning that they undergo complete metamorphosis. They also usually have prominent antenna and a hardened ovipositor, which is kind of like this tiny straw that pushes eggs out of their abdomen. And the final similarity I will mention for this episode is that this group sees eusocial behavior pop up quite a bit. If you remember back to our month of ants, eusociality 
refers to animals which live in multi-generational family groups in which most of the individuals live to support a small number of reproductive individuals. So I know that's a lot of fancy words, but bear with me here. Now, when it comes to the word wasp, there's no easy taxonomic explanation for what that means because it's kind of doesn't just include one family tree. It includes a whole bunch. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty general word. For now, I'll say that the easiest way to tell a wasp as just like a regular person walking around, if you see a bug, the best way to tell if it's a wasp is if it has four wings and a very thin waist. Bees will often also look like this, but usually bees are fuzzier. So that's my sort of like quick tip for this episode on identifying a wasp. Wasps, ants, and bees appear to have begun showing up in the evolutionary party in like the Jurassic, so just under 200 million years ago. And to give a really quick summary of what happened, it looks like sawflies are the most quote-unquote primitive group, and they developed into the true wasps. And from that, the bees showed up around 125 million years ago in the mid-Cretaceous as flowers began to diversify to attract these insect pollinators. So ultimately, bees are also really wasps. Like, they really are just like flower wasps, in my opinion. <laughs> okay, so it's so the wasp came first in the evolutionary equation. That's That's super interesting. Yeah, and like it seems like bees were sort of like, wow, look at all these, this new fangled thing called a flower. This is pretty cool. And they started, you know, doing stuff with flowers. And the flowers were like, hey, this is useful. They're pollinating us better make our flowers prettier and attract them. So that's kind of a cool little evolutionary thing that happened over there. That's so cool. And so are there like fossils that are used as evidence for this? Yeah, so there's lots of wasps and bees that are trapped in amber. There's also some outlines of bugs that are found kind of like if, when you've seen like leaves that are, are or outlines of leaves in rock slate, you basically see the same thing, but with bugs. And often they look very like clearly a bug. It's really cool. And there's even been preserved wasp nests found from, you know, throughout ancient history, but also the late Cretaceous, which sort of supports our idea of when wasps or like social wasps began to come about. So because as I said before, wasps, big group. So today we're just going to focus on the paper wasps because these are the ones featured in the game and they're also the ones we're most familiar with. So yeah, that's our focus today. Let's from now on, I'm talking about the paper wasps when I say wasp. So this group scientifically is called the polysts. I think that's how you pronounce it. And they live all over the world except Antarctica. So if you don't like wasps, you can go to Antarctica. There's at least one place in the world without them. Within the polysts, there's a very large family called Vespidae. And this is where we find like yellow jackets and other common nest building urban wasps that you've probably seen. The name polysts means city founder in Greek, and it refers to the massive and very impressive nests that wasps build. To build these nests, a bunch of female reproducing wasps called gynes will sort of fly around, they'll find bits of wood, and what they'll do is they'll sort of carve into the wood and use their saliva to help soften that wood and create little like morsels of wood. Then they'll bring it back to their nest where they take that woody paste and they'll layer it on to the nest, basically exactly like how you make paper. And if you've ever touched one of these nests, you'll know that that name paper wasp is really 
accurate. <laughs> like these bugs are literally building their homes out of paper, which is really cool to think about. And the layers of these paper can be quite fragile or they can be really strong depending on the species. The paper layers are not just, you know, a cool construction material that, you know, can they can build very complex nests out of, but they're also really good at insulating this nest from the cold. And if we think of here in Canada, I mean, we have lots of wasps' nests and they have to be relatively insulated because it gets pretty cold here in the winter. During this nest building process, a social hierarchy is established. And unlike a queen ant who will suppress her worker ants from developing functional ovaries using her pheromones, the dominant wasp queen will prevent her sisters from developing reproductive ovaries using aggression and intimidation. And I like to imagine this as like a reality TV show cast like Selling Sunset in which the wasp nest is just like, led by Christine Quinn, who's like super aggressive and, you know, <laughs> keeps everyone very submissive under her. I just think it's really interesting that, yeah, we see such a different technique used between ants and wasps here. Now, the wasp queen or queens, depending on the species, will go and lay an egg in each of these little cells within the nest. Now, if you haven't actually looked at a wasp's nest before, it looks very similar to like a beehive where it's got these little hexagonical cubes, basically, and they'll lay those eggs in the cube. The eggs will also be attached to the cell with some more like spit and paper, basically some cement to keep it in there and make sure it doesn't fall out because that would that would be bad for the larva. So the egg will begin developing and a larva, which will be scarcely indistinguishable from the egg it came out of, will emerge. This larva will go through a series of larval instars. So basically think of like Pokemon evolutions in which it'll shed its old skin as it gets bigger and bigger and start to look more like a squishy white or yellow gummy worm. And then eventually it will be time for it to become a pupa. At this point, it has these glands near its mouth parts and it can start to spit out silk. It'll get itself all wrapped up nice like a taco. And then when it's ready, it ejects all of its poop. So um, to be more specific, it's called me meconium. And it happens to also be the same term that's used in humans. Because when I searched it up, because I was like, okay, what is this term? According to John Hopkins Medicine, this is, quote, the first feces or stool of the newborn, which I thought was really interesting. <laughs> so now this larva is sitting in what is basically like a dirty diaper. But yeah, that's where it's <laughs> going to hang out. Um, <laughs> and the larva will start to turn white and harden. At this point, it's starting to undergo metamorphosis. And this pupa... Uh, which is what you now call the state of its life cycle, it'll darken. And eventually, once it's fully grown into an adult, it'll chew itself out of this silk cocoon and it'll chew itself out of this brood casing. So like the, the little tube in the nest that it's in. And, you know, it'll go on and become its little adult wasp self. So it'll either be a, a worker or a reproductive individual. So again, if it's helpful to think about it this way, when it comes to Pokemon, if you want to imagine this life cycle, we're going from Weedle, the little larva, to Kakuna, the hardened shielded pupa, to Beedrill, our adult wasp. So when in doubt, look at Pokemon evolution for your biology lessons. This is a, a video game science podcast after all. That's right. So paper wasps will usually produce their next reproductive generation of gynes and males near the end of the season, because prior to that, the focus is on producing 
really only workers because they want to support the construction of the hive and they want to have plenty of workers to eventually bring food to the larval reproductive class. They sort of, you know, want to build up their little army and their little workers before they, you know, it's the real deal. They've got to have a really solid reproductive season almost. So it's a really good strategic move. In temperate regions, the end of the season will be in the fall, but in tropical places, you know, the end of that season is determined more strongly by changes in wet and dry seasons and by what food is available. At least here in Alberta, you know, once it's fall, it's going to be winter soon. So, you know, in fall is where you're going to see all those those males and the reproductive females. In many cases, the larvae that will eventually develop into reproductive individuals won't actually emerge as adults at the end of the season. In more temperate regions, these larvae will basically spin their cocoons and then they'll go into this diapause, which is basically a hibernation. And the cocoon will protect them from the cold winter and from parasites. And then once the weather warms up again, the larva will develop and emerge and go through its adult life. I should have mentioned too, like chewing out of their cocoon and their, you know, their spot in the nest can actually be kind of risky because not all adult wasps manage to do it. They, they don't manage to succeed and they can actually die in the nest. So it's a hard life being a bug. Wow. And so what are the males doing during this time? Like, are they like workers or soldiers or nothing? <laughs> They're just like with ants, the male wasps sole purpose in life is to mate. So they have no real responsibility to the nest. They are basically born, they mate and they die. So yeah, like they aren't workers ever. That's something I thought was interesting and very similar among all of these eusocial hymenopterans, like the ants and the bees. Is the males really, throughout this whole process, rarely serve any purpose other than mating. <laughs> Those useless men. <laughs> Absolutely. This is a matriarchal insect group. Yeah, really. And so what are the worker wasps doing during the peak of the, I guess, active wasp season? The workers are doing four main things. So they're building the nest, they're gathering the food, they're defending the nest, and very importantly, they're caring for the larva. So defending the nest seems like a really easy task for wasps because they have their horrible sting and obviously none of us want to get close to them. But Often, they don't even need to, like, flash that stinger to ward off potential predators. Their very bright coloration, that yellow and black, is such an effective warning signal to predators that tons of other species that are not wasps try to mimic it. That includes beetles, all kinds of flies, mantis flies, which, if you don't know what those are, you need to search them up because they're crazy. There's also clear wing moths and plenty of true bugs that will mimic that yellow and black striped pattern. Some worker wasps' job will simply to be to crawl over the nest and through the power of like teamwork, their bright coloring is really a defense to the colony. Because, you know, if there's a whole bunch of wasps crawling all over a nest, that's very uninteresting to most predators. But they aren't just showing off those colors. These wasps will also be on the hunt for parasitic wasps, flies, or any other kind of parasite that's trying to make its way into the nest. So, you know, they'll find their their enemies and they will they will effectively destroy them. These wasps are so good at what they do that neotropical oropendola birds will even build these long pendulum-shaped hanging nests near wasps because the wasps will actually ward off a lot of the predators and parasites that also the birds don't really want around. 
The workers on the surface of the nest will also help to maintain the nest by fanning their wings to cool it down on a hot day or to remove water from the nest on a rainy one. And they'll do this by basically taking droplets of water like one by one off the nest. And I think that's a really cute little image. It sounds like a lot of work, though. (laughs) (laughs) One by one. Yeah. Yeah. And like ants, the older the wasp, the more dangerous of a task they get, meaning that while the younger wasps will stay at the nest to build, maintain, and defend maybe just the outside of the nest, the older wasps will be sent out to collect food far away from the nest where they might be eaten or stomped on or, you know, any other number of terrifying ways to die. So it's a sexist and ageist society. (laughs) Yeah, I I wouldn't say they're a model for the perfect society. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when it comes to gathering food, there's two main things that they need. They need carbohydrates and they need protein. Now, the carbohydrates are largely what fuel the adults because they really need sugar. Um, They just need that, like, frappuccino boost to get them through the day. They're flying all over the place. They're avoiding, you know, brutal deaths. So, yeah, they need a lot of energy. They get a lot of that sugar from plant nectar in flowers. So on those flowers, they will often just happen to pick up pollen, which makes them pollinators just like bees. And they may not be quite as good at pollinating as bees because bees are covered in fluff, makes it really easy for them to pick up pollen. But wasps are still pollinators. And I think that's something that's ignored a lot in media, let's say, when we're talking about wasps. Not only will wasps get their sugary energy from flowers, but they might also find it at sort of oozing sap from trees or from this fancy thing called an extra floral nectary, which basically means other spots on a plant that produce nectar. And these nectaries are useful for plants because they attract predatory bugs like wasps and ants, but they don't need to flower the whole season to do so. And the reason they want those wasps and ants around is that they're predators, so they'll eat like really annoying pests and stuff. Some wasps are also so hungry for that nectar that they will actually kill bees and drink the honey from their crop, which is very vampiric of them. And also there's the European hornet. It will like actively squeeze out nectar from some shrubs, which I think is also really interesting. So yeah, they they can't get enough of that nectar. Wait, when you say that they'll drink the honey from the bee's crop, is that like from their body? Yeah, it's basically like, like it, if you know what a bird crop is, it's almost like a like a extra stomach almost in their throat. I know stomach oh, is not the okay, right word, but yeah. I feel like that brings kind of a similar image. It's like a part in their digestive system that like stores stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So in that case, yeah. It's, yeah. That's intense. Yeah, it's like a place where they can sort of regurgitate. So they'll just like store that food. So yeah, Mm. it's a little bit intense. They can also get sugar from a very delicious sounding thing called honeydew. But again, if you've listened to the ants episode, you would probably think twice about eating this stuff because honeydew is actually the gooey waste products of aphids and other true bugs. So yeah, ants will farm aphids for honeydew which I'm, I will never get over. It's so interesting. <laughs> but of course, if you've ever had a plate of hamburgers sitting out on the patio, you'll know that wasps aren't just interested in sugar. They also love meat. As Lather said, we ought to call them the meat bees. 
So protein isn't so much important to the adults as it is to their larvae. Wasps will fly around looking for insects to feed their young. Now for the older larvae, their favorite snack is a nice caterpillar. Once one of those juicy caterpillars are found, the wasp will grab onto it and sting it until it's paralyzed or dead. Now it'll basically chew up this caterpillar into like a nice little patty, like a caterpillar patty. And then the wasp will draw the liquid from that patty into her crop and bring the sort of meaty morsel back to the nest. The worker wasp will then crawl into the nest until she finds the larva she's feeding. She'll poke the larva's head with her antenna to signal it to open its mouth parts up, and at which point she'll offer the caterpillar patty to the older larva to take bites of. So she'll feed it to a whole bunch of different larvae. But just like human babies, the youngest baby wasps can't eat big pieces of food yet. So they are actually sustained off a liquid diet that the wasp stored from that meaty patty in her crop. And what is that liquid made of? Well, it just so happens to be largely made up of bug blood called hemolymph and also nectar. But it sounds much more dramatic and fun to say that like wasp babies are fed with the blood of yellow jacket enemies. So that is very vampiric and just metal in general. It's very metal, but kind of cool. Also, like how like efficient is that? They're like, hmm, there's some like juicy stuff on this. I'll save that for like the little babies and then the older babies can get like the actual meat. Yeah, they're, they're really using all of it. And so this is what, like, so if a wasp comes and, like, takes some of your burger or your salmon or whatever, they're going to give it to the larva? Most likely, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Maybe I'll let them land on my on my chicken next time. Yeah, you'll be like, all right, you need to feed feed the kiddos. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> I kind of, it makes me wonder though, like I'm going to start paying more attention to when they do that. Cause like if they are just taking little pieces, does that mean they'll just leave? But then of course you're probably just attracting more. Yeah. Some people will like leave like a little plate of like just some of the juices or like a little meat or something kind of like further away from their, their stuff to just sort of satiate the wasps, <laughs> like an offering. I kind of wonder. Yeah. Like I'm going to try it next time and see if it works. Yeah. The other thing that's kind of cool about this relationship that the worker wasps have with the larva is that the larva will produce this sugary, nutritious fluid that adults can feed off of. So kind of like, I'm like, imagine if you were making food for like your kid and then the kid finished their meal and was like, thank you. Now let me make some dessert. Like that seems (laughs) like a very polite thing to do. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, that's the main stuff I, I honestly wanted to talk about today. But from what we've learned today, like, I want to point out some really major ecological services that wasps are providing. So, you know, for one, we said they're pollinating, not maybe not quite as well as bees, but like they're still pollinators. And if you consider how many wasps are around, like that's they're still performing a service. So definitely next time someone's like, what is the point of a wasp? They don't even pollinate. You can be like, -uh. no, they do. They do. And, uh, you know, especially when we're talking about not just like the paper wasps, all those other wasps, there are definitely some major pollinators in the larger group of wasps. But another major ecological function they perform is that they're, they're major predators. Like think of all the caterpillars that are pests in crops and in your gardens. 
like when I was in Ontario, there was like this disgusting plague of spongy moths that defoliated every tree in sight. Like it honestly, it was like July and it looked like like the fall, like it looked like October mm-hmm. out there. It was quite terrifying. No, I mean, this isn't to say that wasps would have been able to control those caterpillars, but without them, it's hard to say what kind of caterpillar apocalypse we might be facing. And, you know, I used cal- caterpillars as an example because in the books it, it talked a lot about caterpillars, but really uh, wasps will eat all kinds of insects dead or alive. You know, some of them will scavenge even. So they are performing sort of a cleanup slash like predatory function. I also mentioned how plants will secrete nectar in extrafloral nectaries and through sap. And a lot of plants do this so that they can attract those predaceous insects who, you know, while stopping for a sweet treat on the way back to the nest, they might like happen to spot a really annoying weevil and they'll be like, hey, maybe I'll bring home some bacon and they'll kill the weevil. So not only is that useful for the wasp, but the tree just got rid of a pest that could burrow into the bark and cause lots of problems for the tree. So plants need wasps too, and they've evolved alongside wasps. The third thing I wanted to mention too is not only do wasps eat things, but other things eat wasps. So despite the nasty sting, plenty of birds, bats, and other mammals, even reptiles, will eat wasps. And that's not even to mention all the invertebrates. Now, while wasp stings can't pierce a bird bill, there are even birds like tanagers who will like rip out the stinger before eating a wasp. So there's lots of adaptations that other animals have figured out to use wasps as a good prey item. Some birds will even rip into wasp nests during the inactive period in the winter. Like they can find some nice little diapaused larvae to eat. A lot of ravens and crows will do this because they're super smart. And we'll talk a lot more about these predators and these other interactions with wildlife in the next episode. Now, I really just scratched the surface of wasps today, but I really just want to give you the basics because next week we're going to get into some more like crazy facts about their stings and wasp betrayal and how other animals interact with wasps and whatever other fun and hopefully weird facts I can find about these bugs. Oh yeah, I'm so excited. Thank you so much, Olivia. I really, I think this might be my favorite episode so far. Oh my gosh, really? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I just, I guess I just knew so little about wasps and they are so maligned. And I feel like we're doing like a you're wrong about, you're wrong about wasps. Oh, yes. Oh, you should go on your wrong about to talk about about wasps. wasps. (laughs) Everyone write to Sarah. Yeah. I would love that. Tell her to have Olivia on. I would love that so much. It would be so intimidating. (laughs) They have such a great podcast. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. If you love a good, like, kind of true crime, but not true crime, like, you're wrong about is so good. Yeah. You're wrong about and maintenance phase are both just probably my they're two favorite nothing podcasts. to do at all with anything that we talk about on our show no but they're good but yeah i mean wasps are kind of maligned women of the 90s and totally all times so yeah <laughs> anyway yeah i I'm, I'm very excited for next week to kind of get to get into it more and i love that we're doing this in summer because there's still time for us to repair our relationship with wasps so exactly exactly So remember to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Beyond Blathers and reach out if you have a request. You can also follow us on TikTok at Beyond underscore Blathers, where I am posting a lot of my master's research because that is the content I currently have. Yeah, the TikTok is so good. 
And of course, tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye! Bye!